Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the Court. My name is Nicholas Hajdukovic. I'm an assistant Washington County attorney, and I represent the appellant, State of Minnesota. This Court should reverse the Court of Appeals and reinstate respondents' convictions for two primary reasons. First, because the District Court did not err, much less plainly err, in not providing a jury instruction that nobody asked for. And second, because even if there was plain error, it did not affect respondents' substantial rights, and he is not entitled to a new trial. I'd like to begin with the first issue, that of simple error. This Court has never required a limiting instruction for relationship evidence in its previous cases. And in fact, in State v. Taylor in 2015, in an analogous context to what we have here, this Court found no error, much less plain error, in the failure of a district court to sua sponte provide a limiting instruction on the use of uh, evidence of impeachment by a prior conviction. As a result, there simply is no error here because there is no rule that was violated by the district court. The next issue then is whether any error, if there was error, was plain. And I would like to begin by, with two observations. First, that it is the respondent's burden as the defendant who failed to object first to show error, and second, to show that any error was plain. And second, um, Justice Strauss's apt observation in his concurrence in State v. Kelly that when we are dealing with plain error, the issue is not even necessarily what the law is, but how clear the law is. Because if there isn't a clear or obvious error by the district court, there is no plain error. Counsel, in the context of the, the pre presented here, which isn't about whether the evidence should have been admitted, but it's about whether a jury instruction should have been given. How do we assess the, the, absent, the impact of the absence of the instruction on the jury? Um, I think if we're looking at that, I think we're looking at the third prong, which is whether it would have affected his substantial rights. And I, I think what the court can look at is what it's looked at in other cases, things like the strength of the state's case, the use of the evidence by the prosecutor um, in closing argument, um, and uh, things of that nature. And what I would submit here is that there, there is, it did not affect appellant subs, or respondent's substantial rights. And I would note that under this court's previous jurisprudence, uh, the respondent not only has a burden, but a heavy burden to show that any plain error affected his substantial rights. When we look at the facts here, the, I think the Court of Appeals um, misstated some of the evidence and the strength of the state's case, as well as how the prosecutor used the evidence in closing argument. Um, with regard to the strength of the state's case, we have a victim who provided detailed testimony about what happened to her all those years ago. And we have numerous statements given in the days following the, um, the incident to two law enforcement officers, two friends of the victim, and her son, all of which were remarkably consistent with each other. And something that was overlooked at the Court of Appeals level, and that is very significant, is essentially a confession, or at least a partial confession, by the respondent. Um, when he made a statement, as the deputy described it, out of the blue, and that he hadn't even been asked about, um, that he had to wipe off, wipe off the victim with a rag, wipe off her leg, um, which could only have been a reference to um, the semen that the victim testified he had ejaculated onto her leg. Um, and that was after he had denied sexual conduct or co contact with the victim several times to the investigating deputy. Um, so we have a confession, we have numerous consistent statements, and we have the fact, added to all that, that respondent Mr. Zinsky chose to testify at trial, denied any wrongdoing whatsoever, and the jury found quite clearly that he had lied to them. Uh, that becomes additional consciousness of guilt evidence, and that's the only way the jury could have convicted, frankly, is if they found that what he had told them was simply false. So all those things put together demonstrate that, there, that it did not affect the respondent's substantial rights, even if there was plain error. And Counsel, um, <clears throat> let's assume we agree with you and we find no plain error here. But let's also assume that we think in these cases instructions are really important. Is there anything to prevent this court from doing what we did in Milton and saying from now on it's going to be plain error? The court could absolutely do that. Um, the court could absolutely affirm or reverse the Court of Appeals and reinstate these convictions and hold prospectively that such an instruction is required. Um, just like in Milton, I, I would agree. Um, and I'd see any downside to doing that. 
The only downside, and uh, first of all, I should back up and note that I don't dispute that the best practice in this situation is for a district court to inquire of defense counsel whether they're requesting a limiting instruction. The only downside I see is that I think it's somewhat inconsistent with this court's decision in Taylor, which found no error, much less plain error, in an analogous context. And then secondly, um, it's inconsistent with the decisions, uh, Tovar and McIntyre, um, and another one that I cited in my brief, that discussed that oftentimes the failure to request a limiting instruction is a matter of trial strategy. Um, so if this court were to go, we're going to announce a prospective rule, I would suggest that the prospective rule ought to be not that necessarily the instruction is required, but that a district court should inquire of defense counsel whether they want it so as not to override counsel's function um, and perhaps strategically not wanting that type of instruction. No. So in that context then, the if we wrote the rule that you just put forth, um, the, in, a, in a future case, the error that would be plain would be the district court's failure to ask defense counsel? Correct, Your Honor. Um, and obviously, if defense counsel requests the instruction and for some reason it's not given, that would be erroneous. And I think that would be an abuse of discretion under Minnesota Rule of Evidence 105, um, which talks about how if, there, if evidence is only admissible for a limited purpose and one party requests a limiting instruction, the district court is required to give it. Would, would that formulation of the, of the error that would be plain change in any way how we would conduct analysis under the third prong? I, I don't think it would change that because, um, the, well, the only thing it might change, I suppose, is it might make it uh, more difficult to assess any strategic uh, basis for the failure to object. And that's um, something that is dealt with in a, a different strand of cases than the ones that are directly on point here, but I still think they're relevant. And it is important that uh, defense counsel have that ability um, to decline a limiting instruction for whatever reason they might have. And there are different reasons that counsel may have in different situations for declining it. Um, but that, that does add that somewhat tricky element, um, I would agree to that. And that would be an, another potential downside. But again, if this court is going to adopt a prospective rule, I would urge it to adopt that rule rather than the requirement of an instruction to preserve that proper strategic role of defense counsel in representing the so, client. So counsel, um, would that look something akin to when the district court, if you have somebody who is wanting to represent themselves and the district court goes into the waiver process? But my fear would be, is there gonna be any sort of a requirement for the district court to inquire further about the reasons for um, not wanting the instruction outside the jury. I mean, it seems to me that's kind of a slippery slope. And I don't think there should, if this court were to announce such a rule, I don't think that that should be part of it, that there should be any requirement to go any further than a simple yes or no, are you requesting this instruction? Um, there's multiple reasons for that, but um, I, I don't think we need to delve into that. And if a defendant wants to claim that their counsel was ineffective because they didn't request an instruction, they can certainly do that in a post-conviction setting and then a record can be made of uh, counsel's reasons for trial strategy. But absent that, I'd be concerned about potentially implicating attorney-client privilege. Maybe it's based on communications. Um, we just don't know, and I don't think that it's necessary. And again, though, I do want to back up. I'm not asking that the court adopt that rule necessarily, but if this court is going to adopt a prospective rule, I think that is the appropriate one. But I do think that is also inconsistent with Taylor. Would that uh, prospective rule that you're sort of not advocating um, be consistent with our prior law. And in that regard, I'm referring to the Taylor case. I, I don't and, think it would be. Well, but let me finish I'm the, sorry. the point if I could. In the Taylor case, we cited Forsman mm -hmm. and said the trial court should sui sponte give an unequivocal limiting instruction both at the time the evidence is admitted and at the close of trial. So it sounds like we're, we said in Forsman and we reiterated in Taylor, you should give the instruction. Your, your point that the, the rule should be that you should ask. That seems quite different. Well, I, I would say two things to that. First of all, this court did say that it should request it, not that it must request it. And I think there is an important distinction between... Yeah, and you, you've and made that point, and I appreciate that. Yeah. But secondly, the, um, this court and, and Taylor followed up the statements about what a district court should do by saying that there was no plain error by the failure to do so. And in fact, not, not, any, not just no plain error, but no error whatsoever. Um, and so given that there is no error whatsoever in Taylor, I think it would be inconsistent with Taylor in that regard. Um, 
it would, I think, be an implicit overruling of at least that small portion of Taylor to say that going forward it will be error if you don't at least inquire about whether counsel is requesting the instruction. Um, I would note as well, um, the, the Milton case has already been brought up, and uh, that's an important case here, as I cited in my reply brief, in terms of determining whether any error is plain, because this court has required, as Milton demonstrates, a high degree of specificity in terms of a jury instruction that is required um, in order to find plain error. Um, obviously, Milton came after the McCook case, which set forth a new, law, a new rule, or at least a clarification of Minnesota law on accomplice liability and what the state has to prove. And this court made very clear in McCook what the state has to prove in terms of the, the accomplice knew that the other accomplices were going to commit a crime and intended their actions or presence to further its commission. Um, but then in Milton, where the jury was instructed, uh, not instructed on those two things that the state had to prove, this court found no plain error in that context because even though this court had announced as a rule of law the state had to prove those things, it hadn't announced that, this, that the, a jury must be instructed that the state had to prove those things. So I think under this court's jurisprudence, there's a high level of specificity that is required, at least in the context of jury instructions, before plain error can be found. And I would also note, again, the, the, the line of cases dealing with trial strategy, and I do think that it's important to preserve counsel's autonomy in representing their client um, in terms of giving them discretion about whether to request a limiting instruction because there are, di there are different reasons that they might have for not requesting it. So I, I do think that requiring that instruction, regardless of what counsel wants um, or without asking counsel and just putting it into the jury instructions is problematic for that reason as well. Another thing I just wanted to note is that the, um, with regard to the, whether any error affected Mr. Zinsky's substantial rights is that um, the state's position is that the Court of Appeals misconstrued the prosecutor's closing argument in the case, and I do think that is important. I was discussing substantial rights before, and I didn't get to that part, but the prosecutor was using the relationship evidence to demonstrate why there was coercion. That is, why the victim felt that if she resisted or tried to get away from the situation, that she would um, possibly suffer physical harm, which is basically what the definition of coercion is. The prosecutor used the relationship evidence almost entirely within the context of arguing that element of the offense, essentially demonstrating that because of all these things that uh, the respondent had done to her in the past, the victim felt that if she tried to resist or get away, that's what would happen again, that she would be essentially assaulted again physically. Um, so I think the Court of Appeals misconstrued the prosecutor's argument there and took it out of its proper context in evaluating whether any error um, affected Mr. Zinsky's substantial rights. Finally, with regard to the final prong of the plain error analysis, whether any error affected the fairness, integrity, or public reputation of the proceedings, I would note that at the end of the day, Mr. Zinsky had a trial in this case, and I'd submit a fair trial um, more than 20 years after um, he allegedly and was found guilty of sexually assaulting his ex-girlfriend. Um, that's at, obviously at a time when the state is at a significant disadvantage. Um, more than 20 years had elapsed. Witnesses had many, many years to forget details about what happened, to disappear, or even to pass away. Um, luckily for the state, the state was able to find a sufficient number of important witnesses who were still around, luckily who were still alive. But I would submit that in, under these particular facts that the Court of Appeals reversal, if this court were to affirm that, would itself be a miscarriage of justice, as this court has characterized the fourth prong. But reversal of the Court of Appeals and affirmance of the district court would not. Therefore, uh, unless there's further questions, the state would ask that the court find no plain error in this case. Can oh, you I'm just sorry. give me the reasons that you think that a, uh, a lawyer, this is a cautionary instruction, so basically saying only think about this for the purpose it was offered. What strategic reason would there be for not wanting that instruction to be given? Um, there's a few I can think of. One would be simply not to draw attention to the evidence if counsel doesn't think it's that harmful, um, or maybe they have a particularly good answer to it, or maybe it even works to their advantage. Um, they might not want to emphasize that evidence. And um, was, that, was that a reason here, that in especially the last thing you mentioned, in terms of using it to their advantage? 
Well, they did, and they did try to use the evidence to their advantage, um, I would argue, in the sense that the, the argument was made that part of the reason the victim wasn't credible from the defense's perspective was that there was no um, evidence, physical evidence, of her being assaulted either in this case or on the prior incidents that were testified to. Um, so, um, and the, so the argument was essentially, well, look, she's claiming all these things happened and there's no evidence of injury in, on any of these previous occasions. So I think the defense did try to use the evidence to their advantage. That may be a strategic reason. And I would note that in the court's prior cases um, that I cited in my brief, I, in, I don't believe that in any of those cases, at least as far as the court's opinion reflects, the, the record gave any in specific indication that there was necessarily a strategic reason for not requesting a limiting instruction. Um, but the court simply noted that that was a possibility and that that weighed in favor of finding no plain error. Um, and so I'm making the same argument here. I'm not claiming that there's any specific evidence in the record that shows a specific strategic reason. But based on those prior decisions, there may well have been a strategic reason, and that's all this court has required in the past. So, unless there's further questions, I would ask the court to reverse, and I thank the court. Thank you, counsel. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Ms. Sheridan. Good morning. May it please the court. My name is Melissa Sheridan. I'm an assistant public defender, and I represent the respondent, Danny Zinsky. Your honors, obviously I disagree completely um, with uh, the appellant in this case. The Court of Appeals decision in Mr. Zinsky's case was the right decision. The Court of Appeals decision in Mr. Mallinson's case was the wrong decision. Since at least 2010, when the Minnesota Court of Appeals decided State versus Barnslater, the universally prevailing understanding in Minnesota courts is that the district court plainly errs by not sua sponte giving a limiting instruction to the jury on the limited purpose and the proper use of relationship evidence. The law was not unclear. It was not unsettled in this area until Melanson itself unsettled it by ignoring that established precedent and incorrectly deciding that a district court's error in not giving a limiting instruction sua sponte is not necessarily a plain error. And the Court of Appeals did this by relying on this court's 2015 decision in State versus Taylor, but nothing about what this court did or said in Taylor changed the settled law in the very different context of limiting relationship, limiting instructions for relationship evidence. Counsel, it's true that Taylor dealt with impeachment by prior conviction, but there is a, uh, I think, a significant paragraph regarding the analogy to Spriegel evidence and citing a long list of cases, including several cases, including Vic, which said it's not plain error not to give a limiting instruction in connection with Spriegel evidence. How, as a matter of principle, do you distinguish relationship evidence under 634.20 uh, from Spriegel evidence with regards to the need for a limiting instruction? There are some, I think, significant differences between the types of evidence and the purposes for which they're, they're um, admitted. But I think the most important difference between um, the Taylor decision about whether or not it's plain error to omit limiting instructions for impeachment evidence and omitting limiting instructions for relationship evidence is that in Taylor, there was no precedent requiring courts to give limiting instructions sua sponte for impeachment evidence. And there was no precedent saying it was plain error if the court did that. But in Mr. Zinsky's case and in Mr. Melanson's case, there was precedent saying explicitly it is plain error for the district court not to sua sponte issue limiting instructions for relationship evidence. And so whether or not an error is plain, the, the determination is made based on, is there a rule? Are courts supposed to do this? Have we said it before? And whether or not this court explicitly said it in Bauer, 
I sure think that the court hinted at it. The Court of Appeals explicitly said so in Meldrum, explicitly Counsel, said so. The problem, it seems to me, for your argument, though, is Melanson itself. I mean, it, it should be a big deal for a court, an appellate court, to say that the district court committed plain error. Um, and, and we don't want district courts to be in the position of debating the validity of rules from the Court of Appeals. So, yes, there's a body of law from the Court of Appeals that says it's plain error, but then there's Melanson that says it's not plain error. So the law is divided. So how can we say, given that context, how can we say this district court judge committed plain error? Well, I think that's a, a really good question, and I think it's a, it's a core question um, that's come up because of Melanson being decided as a published decision um, right before Zinsky was decided two weeks later. Um, I think that, that the important point to focus on with respect to Mr. Zinsky's case is that at the time of Mr. Zinsky's trial, the court... But that's not the test. We said in Kelly... We examine plain error at the time of appeal. Well, I respectfully, I think that that is not precisely what this court said in Kelly. Um, the, the, the court in Kelly held that plain error is not limited to errors that are plain at the time of trial, but rather includes errors that are um, based on law, which was might have been unsettled at the time of trial, but became settled in the defendant's favor at the time of appellate review. And it's my reading of this court's decision in Kelly that um, the court did not intend to lock out defendants from plain error review if the law changes, becomes unclear to their detriment after their trial, after the error occurred in their trial, but before their um, appeal was decided. I think Kelly was intended to address the unfairness that happens when the law changes to a defendant's favor, in a defendant's favor, after their trial, but before their case is decided by the appellate court. So the timing of when plain error um, when an error becomes plain, is intended to favor defendants getting review, not foreclosing review because of the forfeiture doctrine. And so if we look at Kelly that way and we look at what happened in Zinsky's case, when Mr. Zinsky was tried, the district court had been told by the Court of Appeals in Meldrum, in Word, in Barnslater, that the court will commit plain error if the court fails to sua sponte issue the limiting instruction on relationship evidence. That was the plain law. Melanson, I agree, Melanson unsettled that and makes that unclear. Um, and obviously this court um, has the power to affirm Melanson and to say Word and Barnslater and Meldrum were wrong or should be changed. But at the time of Mr. Zinsky's trial, the law was not unsettled for the district court. It's unsettled for all of us now, but it wasn't unsettled then. And that's an important distinction between what happened in in the Taylor case and what happened in Mallinson and what happened in Zinsky. Counsel, taking you back to that uh, paragraph in Taylor, um, there is a line of cases regarding Spriegel, and which basically says that um, as a general matter, it's not plain error not to give a limiting instruction with respect to Spriegel evidence. Um, what is different about 634.20 relationship evidence as compared to Spriegel evidence where we should have a different rule? Well, the, the Court of Appeals in Mr. Zinsky's case um, talked about that uh, in a footnote, but actually pretty extensively, and talked about why relationship evidence is different and why it's more, even more important for judges to, to be in charge of whether or not the jury gets a limiting instruction. First of all, it's really important to focus on um, procedurally the protections that are provided for defendants with respect to the two different kinds of of evidence. With, with 404B evidence, the state has to jump through a lot of hoops 
before it's admissible. And there are a lot of opportunities for defendants to make arguments about why the evidence should be excluded. First of all, the state has to give notice. With relationship evidence, they don't have to give any notice at all um, before the trial or before the, the testimony even comes in. So there's that procedural protection. There's also a really significant procedural protection in terms of the standard for admission. The state has to prove the other bad acts by clear and convincing evidence with respect to Spriegel evidence. And with respect to relationship evidence, there is no standard of proof. If somebody says domestic conduct happened and it involved a family member, it comes in. There's no, no statute of limitations. There's no by a preponderance of the evidence. It's just if somebody says it, it's admissible. Counsel, then, isn't that what we leave up to the jury to make a decision about whether that is a fact or not? I mean, yes, it comes in, but that doesn't mean that it's true. That's the jury's job. Would you not agree with me? Well, the jury decides, sure, whether or not they, they believe um, whether or not the other conduct happened. Um, but my point is, it's, it's easier for the prosecutor to get that bad act evidence in. And I'd, I don't think there's any disagreement that, that prior bad act evidence is prejudicial. Right? That's why we have a general rule, 404, that says generally that doesn't come in unless we follow all these procedural protections. Evidence of domestic conduct under 634.20 is different. Um, it's allowed in regardless without those standards. So the, the protections the defendant gets before that prejudicial evidence is even heard by the jury are, are increased with Spriegel evidence and, and non-existent with respect to relationship evidence. And that's why it's more important for a jury to hear a limiting instruction because the state hasn't already had to jump through all these hoops by the time you, the jury hears the how evidence. How do you respond to the last, um, I shouldn't say last, but one of the arguments that opposing counsel makes the last step in the plain error process, looking at the system and its implications. And the state points out here, um, the events now are 20, over two decades old. Um, the error here, I mean, it, there was no objection. Had there been an objection by counsel for the defendant, we'd be in a much different position. Looking at all of that, does that, how does that weigh here? Well, I, I think that um, in terms of fairness and integrity of the judicial process, the, the focus needs to be on the fairness to the defendant when through no fault of his own, the jury did not get this instruction, right? Even if his attorney made a strategic decision, and I very much um, doubt that that was true, that th there's no evidence that, that defense counsel decided, um, I know how I'm going to win this case. I'm not going to ask for an instruction. Um, so I, I disagree with that. But in terms of fairness and integrity, the Court of Appeals really focused on, look, how fair is it when fully 15% of the state's case is relationship evidence? It's, rela it's evidence of other bad acts that have, are not related to, to the charges in this case, and the jury doesn't know that they're not supposed to consider that um, as direct evidence of his guilt, or they're not supposed to convict him because of that. And so, yes, it's an old case, um, and, and that makes it more difficult for the state, but the fairness and the integrity also needs to be considered in terms of was Mr. Zinsky properly, fairly convicted? Is there, um, a, is there a larger question here on the integrity about not just particular to this case, but how people perceive the fairness of our criminal justice system that comes into this uh, analysis, this last analysis of fairness and integrity of the system? 
Like, oh, absolutely. Uh, so we can consider that as well as the individual facts of this case? Yes, absolutely. And I think that that is uh, one of the important features of that particular um, part that... Well, and, this, and it kind of brings me to the, the line of cases, more in the area of structural error, but it kind of comes off a, an issue that the chief raised with the, with the, um, the appellant. Uh, which is this line of uh, kind of what do you do with missing things? How do we judge the impact of something that never happened? And I think of cases where a juror is improperly excluded from a jury, right? And in that context, we have said that clearly has uh, an impact on the fairness and integrity of the system because there's no way for us to figure that out, right? And so it seems to me that, um, well, I, I, kinda, I guess I agree with you. But the second question I had, though, in terms of the, the question of plain error, is the question properly posed? It seems like the way that this is being framed is we have had to have said this is plain error to find that it's plain error. But isn't the, is the question rather, have we said that you should give this instruction, which we repeatedly have, and I don't think that that's really even an issue here. And if we have said that in the past, that you should give this instruction, isn't not giving the instruction pretty plain error? I mean, the rule is that you're supposed to give this instruction, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. And, and um, I think that I jumped in kind of in the middle of um, the, you know, the logical progression of how this is plain error. But absolutely, when appellate courts tell district courts you should do something and you don't do it, that is, first of all, that's error. So I disagree with the state when they say that the, the district court didn't even commit an error in, in this case. Because if, if the Supreme Court and the Court of Appeals tell district courts do something and they don't do it, do something on your own without a request. You're in charge of instructing the jury and you're in charge of making sure a particular instruction is, is given when a particular type of evidence comes in because the evidence is so prejudicial, because there's such a danger of misuse, then absolutely that's enough. Right. Ms. Sheridan, I, I wonder, uh, backing up to uh, whether this, uh, the, the integrity issue and the fairness issue and whether it affected uh, your client's substantial rights, I mean, I think it's a close case. I think it's a close call. But I wonder if the, the tipping point or the tipping issue isn't the um, uh, partial confession, I think is how Mr. Hidukovic uh, phrased it. Um, because it does seem to me that that's key. When he talks about the fact that, you know, um, he's wiping off the semen, um, that seems to me to be the, the, the tipping point. Am I right about that? Or how should I think about that? Well, how should I think it about could that? be the tipping point if, if um, you read the record and you read the record the same way the prosecutor reads the record and the same way the prosecutor argued the evidence to, to the jury in this case. But there is another way to read the record. Um, the, the police officer who testified, the, the um, recording of, the, of Mr. Zinsky's statement to the police officer was not admitted at the trial. So the judge didn't hear that, the jury didn't hear the actual words. So what they heard on direct examination was the police officer in response to the prosecutor's questions saying that Mr. Zinsky just kind of randomly um, said that, that he had um, wiped her off, um, not, I, my recollection of the testimony was not specifically um, wiped semen off uh, and certainly did not confess to committing the conduct that the officer told Mr. Zinsky he, he had committed. But the, the police officer, when he was cross-examined by defense counsel, um, testified that when he's looking at the transcript of the recording that there were inaudible parts um, and so the context for exactly how Mr. Zinsky said exactly what he said isn't as clear as, um, as the state wants you to see it. So, so we need to, well, maybe I need to go back and look at that transcript of the, of the cross-examination because that was going to be my next question to you. I'm sure he was cross, the officer was cross-examined about that. He was, and he, and, and he said, well, that was inaudible. And, and the, my recollection is that the defense attorney said something like, well, do you remember how it came up or what he said? And, um, and the officer said, well, 
No, I don't remember. And I, you know, I mean, that goes back to the problem of the case being 20 years old. Counsel, um, I want to get back to, to the relevance of the relationship evidence. Um, there was an element required here for the state to prove that your client committed the act with force or coercion, right? Mm -hmm. So isn't the relationship evidence relevant to the coercion as the state's uh, lawyer argues? I'm really glad you asked that because I was afraid I would either forget or not, not have time to bring that up. When relationship evidence is admitted under um, 634.20, it's evidence of domestic conduct allegedly committed um, against the victim in the current case, the victim of domestic conduct. And in those situations, um, this court has held that the evidence is relevant to show the context of the relationship and to help the, the jurors determine credibility between the victim and the defendant, not to prove an element of, a, of the crime. Now, if it's a domestic homicide case, relationship and, and the prosecutor has to prove a past pattern of domestic abuse, then those acts are part of um, what the state has to prove, part of an element. But when relationship evidence is admitted in domestic conduct cases, it's only to show the history of the relationship and put it in context, not to show an element of the, the offense. And so Isn't my, it the same thing here? I mean, just thinking about it from a common sense perspective, I mean, the history of their relationship supports the conclusion that your client was coercive. Honestly, I think that's the really difficult question with evidence of any prior conduct, right? We tell jurors the evidence is being admitted to help you decide whether or not the defendant is guilty, but you can't convict him on the basis of that conduct. That's a that's in the 404B context. Right, and, the, and the, the instruction that's given, that's supposed to be given for relationship evidence is very similar. We've introduced, the state's introduced evidence of other domestic conduct. You're not to convict the defendant on the basis of that conduct. But the instruction says it's admitted to show the history of the relationship. Um, and so I, I, I agree, common sense, it's really hard to tell jurors that, that you cannot convict him for this evidence, but you can use this evidence to help decide if he's guilty. But that's the rule. It's only supposed to be admissible to illuminate the history of the relationship. The other, the other question I wanted to ask you gets back to the point you were making about Kelly. In Kelly, we discuss at length the United States Supreme Court's opinion in Henderson, and I'm wondering if you could shed some light on why Henderson doesn't undercut the argument you're making about how to cabin Kelly. Well, I think that, that in Henderson and then this court's decision to um, follow Henderson, basically, the court was trying to lay out different situations where you know, points in time where we have to decide, we have to make a decision. Was the error plain at this time? Was the error plain at this time? Was the error plain at this time? And so the court says, you know, if it's plain at the time of trial, yes. Is it plain at the time of appeal? But it wasn't plain at the time of trial. Also, yes. Um, if it was not a plain error at the time of trial and it became a plain error before the appeal in the defendant's favor, and I think that's the salient feature here, um, again, because the reading Kelly as a whole, even reading Henderson as a whole, the idea is we need to find a balance between the forfeiture doctrine, which is a rough one. You're not really asking for a balance. You're asking that the plain error rule in order to the benefit of the defendant, who is the one who should have stood up at trial and asked for the instruction. Well, I think the balance that, that I'm asking this court to look at is the balance between locking a defendant out because of the forfeiture doctrine. And yes, the law says it's the defendant's obligation, but it's defense counsel's obligation. So I think it's important to remember that when we talk about plain error, the, the idea behind it is it's not always the defendant's fault. If the defense attorney messes up, if the defense attorney well, doesn't do something. It's also the court's obligation. We've said that repeatedly that you should give this instruction. 
Oh, yes, absolutely, absolutely. And so the, the balance is defendants just don't get review, okay? Everybody agrees that something happened that shouldn't happen or something didn't happen that should have happened, and generally that's a bad thing. That's a prejudicial thing. Um, but, but if there's not an objection, we're not going to hear it. So plain error balances that. Um, when rights are really important. Is, um, do, if, we, if we conclude that this is not plain error because it's not a plain rule, do we have to overrule all the cases where we've said the court should give this instruction? If we agree with the appellant on that point, are we implicitly or explicitly overruling our, our case law that says you, you should give this instruction? Well, for sure, you would be overruling the Court of Appeals decisions in Word and Barnslater because Word and Barnslater said it is a plain error. Those cases would be overruled. But we have also said you should give the instruction. Yes. This court. And would we be Where overruling Where have we said that? that? What case do you rely on for the proposition that our court has said this instruction should be given? State versus Bauer. Bauer was a 404B case. Well, it wasn't a 404B case. It was a relationship evidence case. Um, and f for reasons that, that I don't know, the court at one point, maybe more than one point, used relationship evidence, that term, interchangeably with 404B evidence. Um, and so said 404B, but talking about relationship evidence. So Bauer, in my judgment, Obviously, you guys are the judge of that. And Williams as well, right? Um, and Williams, yes. And Williams said courts should do that. Um, and so I guess the decision is, if we tell courts that they should do something, do they plainly err if they, if they don't? Um, and that likely goes to the appellant's argument about whether or not the plain error is the judge not asking if defense counsel wants it versus just doing it unless there's an objection to doing it. Counsel, um, say that we, we don't agree with you and say that, that it just wasn't clear because of the, the Court of Appeals conflicting cases. I assume from your argument that you think if we did a Milton type thing and did a prospective rule, you would want the, the rule that it, the instruction must be given or it's plain error. Oh, absolutely. You don't, you wouldn't want just that the judge must ask defense counsel. No, because of all the reasons I already stated about how different it is and important it is um, to get a limiting instruction, it should be the judge's ultimate responsibility. Counsel, you've distinguished um, impeachment by conviction and Spriegel 404B. Um, what other, um, in what other context have we announced a rule that if evidence comes in and there's no limiting instruction, it's plain error. Does anything come to mind? Not right off the bat. I'm I can't sure think, it will of, when I I can't think of one either. So this would be a unique rule. Well, unique if you overrule the Court of Appeals decisions. Yes. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you, uh, Mr. Hajdukovic. You have ten minutes for rebuttal. I'd like to begin with a brief discussion of the Kelly case. Um, on page 275 of the court's opinion in Kelly under Roman numeral two, the court indicates that the crux of the, of the dispute is whether the plainness of the error is examined at the time of the error or at the time of appellate review. And this court said, quote, for the reasons that follow, we conclude that plain error is determined at the time of appellate review. Um, there, the Kelly, there's no indication within the Kelly case that it's intended to be a one-way ratchet that would work only to the benefit of one side and not the other. There is discussion in the case, as, as Ms. Sheridan points out, about the unsettled nature of the law at the time of trial in that case. Correct, Your Honor. Um, and this court went through different scenarios and concluded basically that, though there may not be a necessarily perfect rule because of sort of the doctrinal oddities of plain error, that this was the best rule to adopt. Um, and I would note, um, in response to Your Honor's question about the Henderson case, I think the Henderson case absolutely undermines the respondent's argument here. Um, as this court noted, in Henderson, the U.S. Supreme Court concluded that regardless of whether the legal question was settled or unsettled at the time of trial, the second prong of the plain error doctrine is satisfied if the error is plain at the time of appellate review. 
and the court reasoned that assessing the error at the time of appellate review advances the general rule that an appellate court must apply the law in effect at the time it renders its decision. And that to me is probably the single strongest argument in favor of, uh, frankly, this court's decision in Kelly is because it, it doesn't seem to make sense for this court to look at the law as it previously existed, not how it exists now. Um, I would also, also, I wonder if I could ask you the same question I asked Ms. Sharon, and is there any other area, um, any kind of evidence when it comes in that a limiting instruction is required, and it would be plain error not to give it? I'm not aware of any, um, and I did research on it. I could not find anything, um, and in fact, this court has held in other contexts that it is reluctant to require a limiting instruction on evidence that's received if, if that limiting instruction is not requested. Such as when the defendant chooses to testify. We've, we've held that it, it, in fact, is error to give one without the consent of the defense. Correct. That, and um, I, I think that's a little bit different because it implicates a constitutional right. And in, in things like, for example, the presumption of innocence and proof beyond a reasonable doubt, the courts have held that just as a matter of constitutional law, those instructions are per se required. And I think that because it's, that's a Fifth Amendment issue, that's sort of implicated by that line of cases. But where we have purely evidentiary issues, I'm aware of no um, decisions by this court that ever would require that. Are we bound by Henderson or um, any of those Supreme Court cases since we're interpreting a Minnesota rule? No, uh, the, this court isn't bound by the US Supreme Court decisions on plain error. But I would note that in Kelly, this court did quote Henderson approvingly and I think adopt its reasoning or at least that part of its reasoning in its Well, decision. in the specific context of Kelly, but not any broader than that. Well, we didn't I, adopt Henderson. Correct. I don't think the court necessarily adopted Henderson part and parcel, but, that, but certainly that part, which I think is relevant here, was adopted. And if we adopt your rule, then the rule really, any suggestions that we've made in the past under types of relationship evidence that a court should instruct jurors, that kind of rule goes out the door then if we, if we follow your position, at least if we find that there's no plain error here. We could, we could get to the result you want on, you know, there was no um, harm done essentially, but if we deal with it on error, plain error, are we kind of saying that rule really isn't the case? I don't think so, or at least not any more than what you've already done. Um, and what I'm referring to there is the Taylor case. Um, the Taylor case examined several of those decisions in which the court uses that language that a district court should provide the limiting instruction in the context of relationship, or I'm sorry, Spriegel evidence or uh, impeachment by prior conviction, and uh, looked at those cases, noted the language should, and found even despite that language, no error, much less plain error. So I don't think that holding in the state's favor here would be changing the law. So what good does saying they should give it too thin. I mean, as a practical matter, district courts can give it or not, right? I mean, I, that's, the, that's the practical implication. I, I think so, and I, I think it's, a, it's an encouragement. It's a best practice, um, certainly, to at least inquire. Uh, I agree with that. And so maybe it has that effect. And also, if it's Counsel, requested. Counsel, if we said must, then it would be a different matter, right? Absolutely. Yep, if the court says the district court must do something and then in the future it doesn't, I think that is error. And but it's why is that the case? Why isn't saying you should do this not give the trial courts enough to direction that this is something that should happen? Uh, I think there's two reasons. First of all, because plain error has been defined as clear or obvious error. Um, and, I, and so saying should, you should do this by the Supreme Court to district courts is not clear or obvious directive? I, in the context of plain error, I don't think it is, um, because plain error is, again, obviously, as uh, counsel described it in her brief, it's supposed to be a difficult um, doctrine to meet. And this court in Taylor, the second part of my answer to this question would be this court in Taylor, again, looked at that language, should, in the prior cases, and found no error, much less plain error. And so and I think counsel, this... would you agree that historically district court judges has, have read a should very differently than a must? Yes, I, I think that's uh, very fair. And I, I think that's inherent in just the difference in the terminology. I, I would say should imply, or should indicates a preference, um, and must indicate is the same as saying shall in a statute. So um, we really just should never say should. Um, <laughs> if the court wants to announce a rule that would indicate plain error, I think use of the terms must or shall or things to that effect um, are, are important. Um, because, again, we're dealing with plain error here, not just an abuse of discretion, um, where, the, where the error has to be really clear and really obvious. Um, 
I would also note that counsel argues that the Court of Appeals decisions, um, Meldrum, Word, and Barnes Slater created a, 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 a rule. And I would submit that those cases, obviously they're not binding on this court. Uh, they couldn't be. And to argue that the Court of Appeals can establish a plain error that this court is bound to recognize, I think is problematic. Um, in no small part because the court... I, I don't think that's quite fair to opposing counsel because as I recall her argument, she said we, we, could, we could announce a different rule than the Court of Appeals. And, and to the extent those are published decisions of the Court of Appeals... Aren't, don't they establish the rule the district courts have to follow in the absence of an opinion from our court? In the absence of an opinion from this court, yes, and the district court would be bound to follow them. But I don't think that it, that doesn't necessarily mean that this court is required to find plain error just because the Court of Appeals has in the same context. And I'm not, I did not hear, maybe okay. I missed it, but I'm not hearing opposing counsel make the argument that we're somehow bound by the Court of Appeals decisions. Right, right. And, and, and just to know, and, I, and I, I'm certainly not trying to mischaracterize counsel's argument either, that's not my intent. But uh, obviously the um, follow, saying that the Court of Appeals has established a rule that must be followed by this court is also problematic because it would give the, allow the Court of Appeals to determine what is error in the first instance and then this court would not have the authority to revisit that, which I think is completely inconsistent with this court's position in, the, in our vertical appellate system. Um, the last thing I want to note here is that um, with regards to the confession um, as a factual matter, the, that is contained at pages 127 through 130 of the trial transcript. Um, in the direct examination, the prosecutor asks the investigating sergeant um, about, first of all, the defendant's first statements about whether there was any sexual contact, which the, the sergeant describes as the denied any sexual contact uh, of any kind. And then the deputy testifies that later he again asked him about it, if there was any sexual contact, and then makes a statement out of the blue about wiping off with a rag. On cross-examination, there's statements about the inaudible portions of the statement, which um, the, the sergeant could not recall what was said during those inaudible statements. But those, I think when you read the transcript, you'll see they pretty clearly reference the um, earlier denials of sexual contact. Um, and he made sort of a specific reference to that I didn't do a specific action. Um, and there's inaudibles around that, but that's not the same part of the statement. I think when you read the transcript, you'll see that as the part where he talks about wiping the victim off with a rag. Counsel, can you respond to um, opposing counsel's argument about coercion and uh, the point that she made essentially that you, you can't use the relationship evidence to prove an element of the crime? Uh, to me, I think if you can't use it for that, then I, frankly, it's probably not irrelevant in a lot of cases. Uh, to me, that's exactly why it should be used. If, there, if the relationship evidence of prior domestic abuse... But doesn't that effectively make it propensity evidence then? It, it doesn't because it was not being used to show that because he acted in a certain way in the past, he did it again. It's to illustrate the victim's fear and the reasonableness of that fear of what would happen if she basically tried to resist or tried to get away from him. She knew in her head what would happen um, if she tried to do that because of what he had done in the past. That is putting the relationship in context, and so I think it was an entirely proper use and, of the and evidence. And particularly because the defendant here was challenging whether she was in fear, right? Absolutely. He was challenging that. He was challenging whether any of that, well, those previous things had ever happened. So it was very it relevant. Could, it could only come in in that context, yes. though. Correct, Your Honor. I would agree with that. I thank the court. I'm out of time. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thanks to both counsel for the help that you provided to the court in this matter. This uh, case is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course.